welcome to the podcast series Breaking and Entering. My name is Victoire Barbin Perron. I am a reporter at Citywide Selector and the host of Breaking and Entering. In this podcast, we profile outstanding asset managers who have had an intriguing career path. They have either left the industry to launch a food business or tech company, or they have conversely entered the industry from a radically different sector. This is a case of Dr. Armando Cuestadillas, the co-founder of the successful Spanish boutique Ilana Capital. Armando is a trained physician who has spent over 10 years in the medical field, practicing internal medicine in the States and running clinical trials in renowned institutions. Four years ago, he decided to take a leap of faith and launch an open-ended fund dedicated to life sciences. The fund, which was officially launched in 2018, is named the Abante Biotech Fund and currently holds over $47 million in assets under management. Armando, welcome and thanks for joining. Well, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I want to get this right. Over a span of about 10 years, you practice internal medicine in the States you run clinical trials and in institutions such as the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. You also build an expertise in an array of specialties, including cardiology, neurosciences and oncology, which will influence, we'll see, the nature of your portfolio. But in 2016, you decide to stop seeing patients, to gather your own capital and to launch a fund with a friend. What makes you take this leap of faith? There were two things that struck me when I was uh, running clinical trials and when I was working as a doctor, as a physician in the United States. The first thing uh, was that I saw a, a revolution happening, truly a revolution happening in the bioscience and the pharmaceutical industry. I think we're a witness of one of the biggest changes in the world of medicine. And that is because we are seeing the convergence of different fields going into into this world those fields are basically the world of uh, artificial intelligence one of them uh, the area or the sector of the genetic sector the gene sequencing uh, costs are dropping uh, every day and that's creating great opportunities and in, specifically in the space of oncology we're seeing drugs that are very personalized drugs very targeted for patients with specific genome mutations. And then lastly, we're seeing also convergence from the world of robotics. We see how uh, nanotechnology is being implemented in numerous areas and mainly again in oncology is, is being the main, uh, the key player in the field. And this revolution that you mentioned that changes the medicine model from a reactive one to more of a proactive and productive one reflects in your fund, the Abante Biotech Fund. You, you invest in, in, in five main themes, AI, longevity, personalized medicine, saving costs, and, um, and lastly, nanotechnologies. In essence, I think nanotechnology will be a key driver for the whole industry. I had the privilege of working as a physician both in Europe and in the U.S., in Europe, I uh, was fortunate enough to work in, in, in two countries, in Spain, where I'm originally from, and in Sweden um, during my med school years uh, through our European grant. 
And I saw a great difference between obviously the healthcare systems of the European nations and the American and the American case, specifically in New York City, uh, where I saw patients. And this uh, boils down to the problem that has uh, that that America has to resolve, and it is that some of their citizens don't have great access to healthcare. Uh, if they don't have proper insurance, they tend to they tend to avoid. Uh, they they cannot see the the patient, the doctor. I'm sorry or they can uh, not cover for the cost of their medicines. Uh, surprisingly enough, even though this might sound counterintuitive, uh, a great way to solve this disparity and have more people access to medication is actually through innovation. It's actually through investing in biotech companies and creating more drugs that are available. Because we have to remember that these drugs, once they have uh, have been approved by the regulatory agency, whether that's the European Medical Agency or the FDA, uh, typically after 10 or 15 years, they become public. Essentially, they become free because they then typically uh, a company uh, will lose the patent protection, will lose the monop monopoly of, over that drug, and eventually another company will reproduce that drug in what is called a generic or a biosimilar. So one way I found that I could touch uh, thousands of lives, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, was by investing in innovation and investing in proper uh, disruptive, disruptive technologies and, and, and companies developing drugs that eventually become, uh, you know, used by by a broader population, and uh, in effect, will reduce those disparities. Right. So there were there were quite. Um quite a couple inspirations to creating the fund. You said we at some point, so you you founded the fund with um, a friend of yours who yeah. had experience in asset management, right? Yeah, so one of the key things, uh, the great barriers of entry to become, a, to, to launch a fund in the life science industry is actually having the expertise uh, to understand what these companies are doing from the scientific point of view. These companies in the life science industry typically are driven by scientific, uh, scientific outcomes. And typically those, those scientific outcomes are reported in typically press conferences or uh, uh, scientific conferences. So you need to have uh, that expertise, that scientific expertise. Otherwise, you're going to be blind when you conduct your due diligence. But of course, at the same time, it is necessary to have another person who understands well how the markets work, how uh, to do a proper due diligence also from the financial point of view, how to even trade those, those uh, equities in the public market. So you have to have a both. This is a market where you can be incredibly successful because there's many inefficiencies in the public market. This market has, um, it's not well equipped to actually uh, spar scientific data uh, quickly. So there's tremendous inefficiencies in this market. And if you are able to understand beforehand what's happening and interpret those results, uh, you can be very successful. So yes, we joined forces, my partner, uh, Juan Martinez was coming from Goldman Sachs at the time. He was executive director in the Special Situation Division, uh, which essentially is the, the hedge fund of the of the bank of Goldman Sachs. 
and we decided to join forces to create the first investment vehicle in Spain based in Luxembourg, investing in public equity uh, companies within the life science uh, industry. And we have been tremendously successful ever, ever since our launch in December 2018. We were the first uh, or the, uh, uh, we had the best return in the healthcare industry in Europe last year with almost 50% return. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's the combination of both his knowledge and my knowledge, I think, that uh, drives the success of the fund. Successful indeed. I think your fund's total returns in 2019 was 47.65, if I remember correctly. And year to date, uh, in 2020, it reached almost 10% as well. Um, one thing I was wondering is, was the decision to get involved with clinical trials earlier in your career a calculated one? As in, did, did you know that you wanted to launch a fund that would tap into the clinical trial business when you started working for it? Well, not really. I mean, I was incredibly surprised to see how many medi- drugs and medication was being approved every year, um, essentially going higher than the year before. It's been an incredible success, the, specifically the American pharmaceutical industry ever since the 2000s until uh, the uh, last year, it's been incrementally, uh, it's been increasing incrementally the drugs that have been approved. And there's a number of reasons for that happening. Uh, one of them being the incredible uh, amount of, of knowledge that has been created over the years. The funding has increased both public uh, funding and also the private funding. Um, so I did not have a clear idea that this, that's what I wanted to do, but obviously having the knowledge of how to run properly a clinical trial, what are the things that the FDA looks into uh, when, when they are you know, looking into the data of a clinical trial, how clean the data is, if there has been any breach or not, um, how to interpret the results for a clinical trial, statistically speaking, and compare those results uh, head to head with the standard of the industry, if there's one standard in the industry. Obviously that knowledge, uh, that wealth of knowledge helped me a lot and it's key on my day-to-day basis uh, in my work as a fan manager. Without sharing your signature uh, management or your business secrets, of course, would you be able to share what, um, what is a successful pattern maybe, a successful um, a clinical trial? Yeah. Are there any spe- specialties you could share? Yeah. So, I mean, one of them is one that I mentioned briefly before I touch upon is how good is the science? How valid is the data that the company is giving you, uh, whether it's preclinical data, meaning animal data, or it's clinical data? If it's preclinical data, if you have to understand how is that data, how, how easy is to translate that data to human models. In other words, if I take that drug and put it into a human, is, this, is it going to be as toxic as the drug I'm giving to this mice or this monkey? Is it going to be uh, it's going to be the same efficacy? Most times, there's not good translation between the animal model and the humans, and that's why many many companies in that uh, <clears throat> transition tend to fail. So one of them is, as I mentioned, how translatable is the data. Then you want to look at 
is this company having a good management team? Do they have the expertise, the track record? Is it successful? Do they understand what they're doing? What, are, what is their motivation uh, to do this? Are they way, well aligned financially uh, with you as an investor? That's another very important point. Another third point, and this one as a physician, it's for me relatively easy to do is, well, is the pathophysiology well understood? In other words, do we understand why this condition is happening? Um, so for example, in the case of neurology and mental disorders, say for example, depression or say Alzheimer, we have a poor understanding as to why is Alzheimer's happening or why is depression happening? When those situations happen that we don't really know um, what's underlying, what are the problems that cells are having, typically their uh, chance of success is much less. And we have seen this again and again with those uh, companies that have tried to come up with drugs in the field of uh, depression or in the field of, uh, in generally, psych psychiatric disorders. And again, you have to understand as a physician, okay, do I understand, is it well understood the, this pathophysiology? And does it make sense? the mechanism of action of the drug that this company have, does it make sense uh, to be used in, in this disorder? That's another very, very important aspect you have to take into account. How well, uh, how well understood is that mechanism of action and does it make sense in, into that condition? Another thing is, do we have already drugs available for that condition? If, and if we do, Sometimes we don't have drugs, and uh, actually many of our companies in our portfolio are targeting orphan uh, drugs or orphan diseases, sorry, that uh, in most cases don't have any uh, treatment whatsoever available. Um, but if there are drugs available, how, how is this drug that this company is offering compare to the one that the patients are already taking? Are the patients uh, do, the, do these patients have enough therapeutic ad adherence? Meaning, do the patients typically take their medication or they actually tend to forget? Is there a problem with the medication that they have uh, nowadays? Um, is it, does, does the medication that they're taking have a true clinical impact or not? Uh, because in many occasions, what companies do, biotech companies, is they offer you data that look great on paper uh, from the statistical point of view, but so many, in many occasions, that, that, that data does not have a clinical impact. In other words, uh, it may change some level of uh, whatever, of an enzyme or whatever it is, but it may not change clinically how the patient, how the patient feels um, or the signs or the symptoms of the patient. So that's why it's important to understand from, from a physician point of view, okay, does this drug, is this drug something I would actually prescribe to my patient if, if I had the, the chance, no? And also, are the insurances going to cover the cost for this drug? We have seen recently how, for example, uh, a company that recently released uh, a little pill that has some diagnostic capabilities within the pill, it's a swallowed pill, um, was not being covered by insurance. So in the US, it's very important whether or not the insurance uh, is going to be interested in your product and is going to uh, be covering the product. So that, that's a summary uh, of part of the due diligence that you have to do uh, from, the from the more biological or scientific or, or medical point of view 
Um, there are many others, of course, uh, you have to look into like how strong the clinical trial is, how robust the data is that you are seeing. Is it a big sample? Is it a good sample of, of patients really, or is it a truly small sample and it's therefore hard to translate those results into the bigger population? Uh, are they following the FDI, FDA guidelines for that specific condition? Um, um, so th those are some of the, of the things that come to mind. Uh, actually, we run uh, an in-depth in uh, due diligence from my side that accounts to about 100 different variables that we look into for each company. Right. And so have you, conversely, have you ever come across a product that looked, I mean, a drug that looked great from a knowledgeable physician perspective, but which wasn't necessarily a great investment? So is there a difference between yeah. great pharma biotech products and great returns? Um, you know, it unfortunately happens and COVID-19 is a great example. Um, COVID-19 has shown the world that we have been investing um, greatly in obvious, in obvious uh, very difficult conditions like cancer, uh, for example, being one of them. Uh, which is something that is very prevalent, especially across the Western population, uh, which is a population that tend to uh, tend to live very long. Um, but we have neglected we have neglected the infectious disease disease area, and even though that from the social point of view makes a lot of sense to invest into things like preventing psyca, preventing Ebola preventing now SARS-CoV-2, it's a, an area that typically has been neglected by the financial industry because there's no great incentives to, uh, for investors to obtain returns from, from these companies. One of the reasons for that is because typically once the patient has been cured, um, you kind of is, is so successful, the, the, the product, that there's no more client, if you will, because that patient doesn't need your, your drug anymore if it's an antibiotic or if it's an antiviral. So that's one of the reasons why the industry has been reluctant to invest into the infectious disease sector. And it's something that can be addressed by uh, actually things that we have seen lately on the media, things like very strong partnerships between the pr private on the public industry, like we have seen with, for example, the CEPI coalition, or we have seen, for example, with uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, from the White House, or we have seen with the um, collaboration between the NIH and Moderna to develop a, a potential vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. So you're sharing great insights about how to identify um, successful patterns, and and it seems that um, that you that, uh, an investor who wouldn't know about all these things that you know the physician wouldn't be able to strike um, as great deals as you do. Which leads me to ask, obviously, about your successful fund and what you hold in it. Can we speak about maybe the top three holdings that have driven your outperformance recently? Mm. Um, so we try to be, uh, to diversify. That's one of the rules in every, in every fund, I guess, uh, when, when they invest. And we diversify from the scientific point of view into technologies that are 
uh, disruptive. That's one uh, big uh, group of companies that we have. Uh, when I say disruptive, I mean companies that have an asset that has not been yet proven that works outside of clinical studies. In other words, that has not been commercialized, anything like that. Uh, typically, this is called first-in-class kind of drug. And then we have a second group of companies that are developing um, technologies that we call iteratives, meaning companies that are replicating other mechanisms of actions that are out there in the industry that have been proven to work and they're commercially available drugs using that, that same mechanism of action. Uh, all they're trying to do is be best in class, meaning trying to beat the, the competitor using the same mechanism of action that that, that competitor has. Um, we can also understand this by, for example, companies that uh, have a, a drug that is being that is being used for a specific uh, condition, and the biotech company, what it does is it strikes a deal to license that drug to be used in, in this new other condition where it might make sense uh, to be used because they share a same mechanism of action. And the third group of companies that we have in terms of the diversification of technology that we do is companies that have very little risk when it comes to the science. So companies that work in the genetic industry or in the biosimilar industry, which is a really a fancy word for genetics. Uh, so in, in the generic industry, we have Millen, for example, which is, uh, we believe, a very good company uh, creating uh, generic drugs. In terms of disruptive companies, we have a strong position in gene editing technologies and gene therapy technologies. Uh, some of our positions includes, include CRISPR Therapeutics, which is a Swiss company, as I mentioned before, or Ideaya, that's uh, I-D-E-A-Y-A. That's a company working in oncology uh, using CRISPR as well. And um, in terms of iterators, in terms of companies that uh, use technology uh, to, to get an edge over other companies, we have, for example, SCPH, SCPH Pharmaceuticals. SCPH Pharmaceuticals, really, it's a company what, that what it does is delivers a otherwise commonly prescribed diuretic that typically is prescribed uh, intravenously, IV, to treat heart failure. But this company has reformulated that compound to be administered subcutaneously. So this company um, is able to essentially take the patient out of the hospital, which is incredibly expensive, uh, so the patient can be treated for, for, their, for his or her heart failure attack in, in their house with the convenience of uh, being in her house or his house and saving lots of costs for the uh, healthcare system. So that would be another example of uh, an iterative technology. And how, how about the specialties and, and making the most of your expertise in oncology and neurology and, and the rest? So we have a strong position in oncology, about 40% of our portfolio is invested in oncology. We have also strong positions in cardiovascular disease, neurology. Um, we had recently a big position as well in infectious disease um, prior to the, to the COVID-19 pandemia. Um, so that's the second layer. And then the third layer of diversification, it's in uh, obviously clinical phases, clinical uh, phases, meaning 
uh, is the company in phase one, is it in phase two or is it in phase three prior to being approved potentially by the FDI or the European Medical Agency. Uh, most of our co uh, companies are either in phase one or phase two, which means that our companies still have a long road, about five years to seven years to get uh, potentially approved by the regulator. Uh, we have a, a position in a small position in phase three or about to get commercialized uh, right, uh, right, in right before the FDI. Uh, in other words, right before the FDA has to say uh, whether or not their, their technology uh, works uh, or not. Um, why isn't it? Why isn't it as interesting to be in phase three um, as it is in phase one and two? It, well, the problem is not a problem. It is uh, obviously the longer you advance through the phases, uh, the less risk there is because part of that the, these companies are the risk. Uh, there's less uh, chance of them failing. Uh, obviously, when they're closer to being commercialized because in phase three companies typically have larger pools of patients being treated with that uh, active ingredient, with that a drug. And uh, typically, well, at that point, we know that their drug is already safe, is uh, not toxic or it's not toxic enough that it's not toxic enough to actually uh, put it away. So to stop in the clinical trial. So in that sense, the potential return of that position obviously is going to be less than if you invest in good technologies in phase one or obviously even preclinical. But typically, uh, companies that are in the preclinical stage are not uh, public equities. And most, most mm -hmm. of the times are going to be private companies who are not going to be uh, targets that we can targets for us. I must ask, and this is not a provoking question or a mean question at all, but do you ever suffer from investors doubting your knowledge in investment since you're coming from a medical perspective um, with your physician experience? Hmm. Um, what they are typically in the industry, if you try to reach out to institutional investors, you would see that they want uh, typically three year of track record. We have been almost two years performing. Uh, we have done very well. We are um, against our benchmark, if you, if you could say so, the NASA Biotech Index, which is the benchmark for the industry. We are uh, uh, clearly um, way, way uh, higher than the benchmark. Um, in, the, in fact, we have 20 or 25 points or more higher than the benchmark. So we're doing very well in that sense. But institutional investors um, like, for example, big insurance companies uh, and so on, they typically want to see that you have reached uh, 100 million in assets under management. Currently, we have almost $50 million, and they want to see a three-year track record to uh, consider investing in your, in your company. So it's not that they doubt our knowledge. In fact, they are very pleased to see that uh, there's two people, one with the financial knowledge and one with the medical knowledge, um, taking care of the, of the investments and the positions, uh, which is actually rare uh, to see that, that duo, that tandem in Europe as, com as com compared to the US where it's more normal to see uh, that kind of blended expertise between people from the world of medicine and the financial world together, uh, not so much in Europe. So they are very pleased, uh, but unfortunately, institutional investors would, uh, would require in most cases three-year track record. 
but in 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 terms of other investors it's actually the opposite they have been incredibly excited about the idea of investing in the industry with us and in fact it's quite rare for a for a fund in in what europeans would say is a niche like the life science industry um go in not even two years from zero to 50 million dollars in asset center management that's quite fast uh for for a spanish-based fund uh and it's actually pretty pretty successful when it comes to how quickly and how much we've been able to raise those funds indeed and you said something striking earlier you said that one of your inspiration when you launched the fund when you decided to take this leap of faith was to touch um more lives by investing in innovation and in disruptive technology hmm. so yeah. Do you think so, that your do you think that your impact in society is more positive now that you are a biotech and pharma investor than than what it was when you were a physician? I mean, being a physician is an incredibly gratifying profession. To be honest, is uh, great to be able to find a person who has a problem and being able to help and understand. Uh, Uh, the disease and understand the incredible suffering that they're going through and being able to diagnose that problem and being able to help give them a treatment that in most cases is going to cure them as an incredible uh, profession. And I actually miss being in touch uh, with, with the, the patients, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't differ much uh, what I do in my day-to-day -day basis versus what I was doing as a doctor. In fact, most of, uh, most of my work, revolves around research, uh, researching conditions, which is something that I was doing uh, as a physician, making sure that I understood well how the disorder uh, was caused, making sure I understood uh, the drugs that I was giving to the patient, making sure that there was no side effects of those drugs that I was given or uh, prescribing to the patient. Uh, so in that sense, there's a lot of research in both, in both uh, of positions that um, that give me a tremendous amount of satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction. It also it is also very important actually the interpersonal skills in both professions. In one, you need to deal with a human being that is obviously conveying subjective uh, information about their disease and their how they feel and you have to translate that into specific concepts and ideas. And in here, you have to deal with the uncertainty of the markets, which in essence is other human beings uh, understanding mm -hmm. how a company is uh, going to be successful or not. So you have to deal with uncertainty uh, and take responsibility for that uncertainty by uh, really being responsible and trying to understand as much as possible of, of, of the disorder. At the same time, I think if you do a proper job here, There's so many opportunities. There's about more than 700 public uh, companies in the life science industry that are trading nowadays on, on uh, the public market. So if you choose uh, those companies that have the correct uh, management team, the correct science, the correct market, um, that they have their skills to put that uh, drug into the market later on, I think with those investments, you can touch uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives because of those investments that you did. So in that sense, it is incredibly gratifying as well. 
uh, it's true that obviously you have a more tangible experience when you're a physician and you see the results of your diagnosis and the treatment that you're, that you're giving your patient uh, rather quickly in most cases compared to, to this, uh, this job that I have nowadays. But if you think about it, they share many aspects. Mm. Do you think this, that this hands-on approach will ever get you back to practicing medicine? Uh, to be honest, if I had to pinpoint one thing that I could change from my current job as an investor and fan manager, it would be actually to be close to the bedside of the patient. And, you know, I believe that this job can create enormous benefit for the patients and for the society as a whole, introducing more drugs, as I mentioned, innovative drugs that eventually become generic and therefore, practically speaking, free. Um, but um, I do miss having those encounters with patients and help them heal, uh, help them in the healing process is something that I would consider uh, at some point going back or trying to do both, both things uh, at the same time in internal medicine, maybe in the morning seeing patients and then back in the afternoon, uh, making sure that those investments that we made are in the correct, uh, on the correct path and uh, just you know, following up with them. That's a very um, great ambition and a perfect uh, segue to wish you successful years and fruitful year for your fund until you potentially go back to medicine then, maybe in the morning. Um, thanks again, Armando, for joining and sharing thank your you peculiar much. and inspiring experience. And dear listeners, thank you for listening in. If you want to find out more inspiring profiles of multi-dimensional asset managers, you can go and check out the rest of the Breaking and Entering series on the CityWire Selector podcast that is available on Spotify. Bye for now. Bye.